1: Everyone, the lecture today is Moral Futures, Halal Businesses in Central Asia, and our speaker is Isalkin Butteva. Um, Isalkin is currently serving as a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at of the George Washington University. She is a sociologist with broader research interests in socioeconomic development, economic decision-making, and resilience in the face of uncertainty. Um, her past and research experience in topics of industrial revival in resource-poor contexts of Central Asia, entrepreneurship in the post-Soviet region, as well as the varying strategies and economic repertoires of action that entrepreneurs employ in this context. In addition to research, Isalkin has taught a wide range of courses from social research methods to globalization and social conflict, leadership and global development, both in Kyrgyzstan and the US. Uh, Her individual research has been funded by the Aga Khan Foundation, Open Society Foundations, as well as the Hazeltine Fellowship of Business, Organizations, and Entrepreneurship Program at Brown University. The results of her individual and collaborative projects have been published in the Politics of Society, Theory and Society, Family and Societies, Post-Soviet Affairs, and Central Asian Survey, among other journals. Thank you so much for speaking with us today.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Sarah, for that introduction. And I'm very excited to be um, joining this session today. Um, As Sarah mentioned, um, I would just like to note to all the participants, welcome. Thank you for your interest in this talk. And if you have any questions, please uh, feel free to type in your questions in the chat. Um, if I see the questions as I talk, um, I'll be happy to answer them or maybe Sarah can let me know if she sees um, the questions. But yeah, please feel free to jump in. Um, before I guess I go ahead and start, I just wanted to quickly ask and maybe people can answer You know, by uh, turning on their microphones or they can type in. How many of you have been to Central Asia? or maybe are from, from the region. Can we have, okay. So Gul says, I study my masters in Bishkek, okay. I assume you are from Bishkek then, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Jennifer says, sadly, I haven't been just to Russia. Anybody else? I see Ryan, Sergei, Ira. I haven't been yet," <laughs> says Allison. Okay, thank you, Sergey. I have. I was born in Bishkek and immigrated to the U.S. in 2002. Great. Yep. Not yet. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, it just helps me to sort of uh, get a sense of where we all are. Um, you know, when it comes to not just you know to this particular topic that I'll be presenting today. Ryan says not yet. Okay, so hopefully in the future, right? Those of you who haven't been to uh, Central Asia yet, um, this is really helpful for me, uh, and I'm hoping to make you know slight adjustments as I as I present today, knowing that. Uh, Uh, to the Central Asian region in general. So my talk today is entitled uh, Moral Futures, Halal Businesses in Central Asia. Um, and you know, please let me know if there are any sort of, again, questions, if something sounds too technical and is unclear to you, um, please feel free to jump in. So let's begin with a quick, uh, I included here a glossary, right, so basically a few of the terms that I'll be using throughout the talk. Um, and Halal obviously is in the title. Halal in Arabic means permissible, right? Uh, Haram is the opposite. Basically, it means prohibited um, in in Arabic. Fatwa is basically a religious legal uh, rulings and opinions issued by Imams, right, or religious authorities Um, based, uh, you know, on their deliberations, on their discussions of um, you know if they are going to consider a certain product or a certain uh, commodity or a certain service activity um halal or haram right so basically it's the religious authorities who are in charge of making those and doing I think is a body of theological thought and uh, commentary based on the Quran and Sunnah. And Sunnah uh, basically is comprised of passages of the Quran that contain the words and actions of the Prophet Muhammad right? and serve as an, sort of one of the sources uh, for rules and norms for pious Muslims across various spheres of life. Um, so these are just some of the terms uh, that may pop up as I speak uh, today. So Dinar Standard is one of the organizations that basically prepares uh, this report, as they call it, the report on the state of the global Islamic economy um, every year. Uh, From what I remember, I think they started in 2012 and 2013. So they produce this report annually and basically show what is the global spending, right? They, they, They make estimates of what is the global spending Uh, in Islamic economy. So in 2018, according to this report, right, uh, to the latest report, um, the the global spending of Muslims uh, across several sectors, right, uh, it totaled nearly to 2.2 trillion million, including, as you can see here, they have a breakdown, right, of uh, however, many billions <laughs> uh, spent on halal compliant food and beverages, um, $283 billion spent on modest fashion, $220 billion on media and recreation, uh, and $189 billion on Muslim friendly travel, right? So, the message of these reports um, is that the Islamic economy is really growing exponentially. And as you can see, they also give their projections, right? What is the global spending will be in 2024, right? Um, So on the slide you can see these projections. In general, sort of that's the message, right? Uh, If you pay attention to the kind of language they use, to the kinds of estimates that they make, the the gist of it, right, the key takeaway, um, so to say, is that, you know, the Islamic economy is growing exponentially um, across the world. Um, So in Central Asia, turning to our region of interest, right? Starting from early to mid 2000s, um, the Central Asian states of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan uh, to have also joined um, this worldwide trend. So when I did my field work in 2012, 2013, um, and actually, you know, that was the year that I spent doing my field work there, but I continued going back, obviously. Um, you know, to uh, collect more data and I finished finally in 2015. But at the time there was also, you know, you, I, you could see there was this trend, a wide, you know, of a wider uh, range of businesses uh, that were identified as Islamic, as Sharia compliant, or Halal, you know, sort of they were popping up um, everywhere. And these ranged from large um, banks, Uh, that identified themselves as Islamic, to microfinance companies, insurance companies, um, you know, Muslim daycares and halal food uh, producers, but also wholesale and retail traders um, of goods, um, you know, of various types of goods, right, from pharmaceutical to beauty products to various other uh, services, right, I mean, there, there were spas, spa salons, and, you know, Taxi services, even right, that that uh, halal-compliant, and we can definitely talk about what that uh, implied, right? That's part of the reason why I'm here today uh, to talk about how entrepreneurs themselves um, understood, right, this particular uh, concept of halal. What is it to run a business that um, is halal-compliant, right? So. Um, At the time again, and this is a little outdated obviously, um, you know, if you look at this map, what it shows is this is according to the 2012 data, um, this is the information that was given to me by third party Halal certifying agencies. Um, So we have these um, agencies that were set up, uh, initially they were affiliated with uh, with uh, Muftiyats, right? Uh, that oversee the work of um, all the mosques across uh, Kurdistan and Kazakhstan. So initially, these agencies were affiliated with Muftiyats, but then eventually they branched out as independent um, organizations, actually for-profit organizations. So at the time, they provided this information and, uh, you know, that they were 600 halal companies and 200 Kal compliant businesses in Kyrgyzstan. These these are the companies um, that received uh, certification, right? Uh, Obviously, the numbers do not include the the kinds of companies that claim to be Halal or Islamic or Sharia-compliant but don't necessarily, right, uh, haven't necessarily obtained the kind of certification from these agencies. So when I started my fieldwork, I basically was interested in these broader questions, right, of why do we see uh, such a rapid explosion in Islamic or halal compliant businesses, uh, both globally but also in the post-Soviet Central Asian context, right? How do people themselves in Central Asia, right, understand uh, this concept of Islamic economy and how do they enact Uh, These principles and tenets in their day-to-day lives, right? Um, And as I conducted my field work, I ended up um, going more in-depth, right, into these questions and looking into um, entanglements of religious and other um, social ideas that guide people's understandings of halal, permissible, right, versus haram, prohibited. is uh, permissible versus when something is prohibited, or what do they mean when something is good versus bad business practice, right? What do they mean when it's an acceptable uh, versus unacceptable uh, commodity, right? Or what do they mean when uh, their income is worthy versus unworthy and so forth, right? So I aim to examine how these ideas that uh, people claim to be uh, religious, right? How do these ideas manifest themselves in the economy, right? In the business sector. So I explored how entrepreneurs specifically who run business uh, companies, that they explicitly sometimes implicitly identify as halal you know how do these entrepreneurs themselves make sense of this concept Um, how do they change their business practices when they actually attempt to uh, render their goods and services halal right Um, and when they want to incorporate these religious tenets into their daily routines what does this mean for their employees perhaps the credibility of the business in the eyes of the public but also for the business and state relations. In mind, I uh, used different methods. Um, so basically, the methods that I used. Were primarily qualitative, right? I um, have utilized participant observation, uh, be- basically, you know, being part of different uh, mosque and Quran study groups, but also um, conducting interviews uh, and oral history uh, conversations with small and medium business owners, uh, as well as certification agencies. Overall, I've conducted um, close to 150 in-depth interviews. And this included, as I mentioned, entrepreneurs, but also religious authorities, right, imams, uh, muftiat, heads of different muftiats, but also um, the state officials. Uh, Finally, I have used secondary uh, data sources, right? Uh, This ranged from various types of advertisements um, that companies would basically use in their work, information booklets, uh, policies and policy recommendations when it comes to the Islamic economy. Right. And uh, newspaper articles. Let me know if you have questions later about uh, these methods. Now, I guess we need to turn to the second part of my slides. Yeah, here you go. Thank you. Sarah. Um, so what you know when it comes to than making sense of the kind of data that I've collected. Right, One of the prominent things in my field work was that, um, and again, I conducted my field work between 2012 and 2015. So at the time, uh, even as religious aspirations and practices surged in Central Asia, one of the prominent things was that, um, you know, there was this palpable sense of doubt uh, and uncertainty among entrepreneurs who ran halal businesses. And these sentiments of doubt were both about uh, profitability of halal businesses, but also uncertainty if they were truly halal, right? So a lot of my, a lot of the entrepreneurs and other respondents uh, in my field work, they would say, well, I'm not sure if these businesses are actually going to thrive, right? I'm not sure if it's going to be profitable in the long run. I'm not sure if customers will, you know, stick to this, right? Um, I'm not sure I'm going to retain my customer base. Uh, And some also voice their concerns, but also, you know, sentiments and sense of sort of doubt, right, if they are truly or want to say, well, you know, I'm running this business to the best of my knowledge, but I'm not sure if I'm doing everything right. Uh, So Central Asian entrepreneurs, you know, it's, it, it should be noted that they're, they we're not really unique in this. Uh, other scholars uh, of Islamic economy elsewhere they have studied sentiments of doubt about, about uh, Muslimness in other contexts. So, for example, uh, Sarah Tobin looks into the Islamic economy and specifically banks in Jordan, and finds very similar dynamics actually. So locally, uh, if we look at the Central Asian context, entrepreneurs' doubts though were also um, you know, further amplified by the contingencies of the local politics uh, and economy. As uh, many of you already know, market actors in Kyrgyzstan have gone through uh, much turbulence uh, in the last three decades. Uh, this included you know, a painful experience of learning how to be entrepreneurs in early 1990s uh political upheavals then in the second decade had overturned two consecutive presidents right in 2005 Askar Akayev was uh dethroned so to say right and then uh in 2010 bakiev the second you know and these of course also entailed um economic crises uncertainty, right, for people in general, but also for entrepreneurs, right, because uh, they, were, they were just not sure at the time if, you know, if their businesses were going to survive at all. Um, and in general, you know, of government budget and corruption, right, that consistently diverts resources from private business into the pockets of well-connected politicians. Uh, So entrepreneurs in general, uh, but particularly those in the halal economy then have understandably been uncertain about the profitability of their businesses and also the sustainability of halal or Islamic businesses, right, in this context. Um, So in other words, rather than providing sort of clear-cut guidelines, um, as to what is halal and what is not halal, right? Religious tenets and discourse, they actually provide sort of guideposts for entrepreneurs who then use them and intermingle them with different sets of beliefs uh, from their local but also transnational experiences of traveling, studying abroad. Uh, they also intermingle experience of doing business, in Pakistan as well as with their aspirations for being a better Muslim, right? So let's switch to our uh, next slide here. Hmm. Ah, yeah, there you go. So, talking about doubts and skepticism, right? Uh, the majority of Kyrgyzstanis, uh, and Kirkul uh, and Sergey will know this. Since you know, they, they, they know the context very well, the majority of Kyrgyzstanis um, have identified, have long identified themselves, right, as Muslims. Uh, and they did so even during the Soviet period. But uh, their access, of course, you know, uh, Kyrgyzstan Muslims, but also Central Asian Muslims in general, their access to religious knowledge uh, and the freedom to practice religion, uh, they were severely limited in the Soviet times, right? So despite the identification as Muslims and, you know, the close coupling of a sense of Muslimness, Persis, Uzbek, Kazakh, and many other national identities, people couldn't really freely attend uh, religious institutions uh, outside of the Central Asian region, right, uh, in the Soviet period. They couldn't send their children to Madrasah, right, religious schools. They couldn't wear religious attire uh, or consume Islamic literature uh, and other commodities and generally express their piety, right, in, in, in the public domain. So even in the early 1990s with the opening of borders, uh, locals still practiced um, their religiosity primarily sort of in the domestic uh, or through domestic customs and rituals, right? Uh, Perhaps, you know, reciting Quran uh, during funerals, for example, or reciting Quran at various festivities and celebrations. But those were sort of uh, really, uh, you know, limited to the domestic, right, domain. So it was only in the early 2000s then that international travels, both for uh, leisure and work, transnational imports and exports of goods, uh, picked up speed. And it was at this time that particularly younger people turned uh, to religion. So people in Kyrgyz would say, uh, or in Kyrgyz, right? Uh, and they did so in greater numbers, uh, particularly in late 90s and early oops i'm trying to turn to the next slide um so to understand religious practice uh fully uh, and to understand you know this halal business in general right it is crucial to closely explore uh, sentiments of doubt and skepticism expressed uh, by the pious muslims so as the soviet ideology uh, lost its grip on the hearts and minds of the citizens with the downfall of the empire, right? People increasingly turned to Islam, uh, reopening mosques and reinvigorating ties with the other fellow Muslims outside of, uh, of their countries. Yet, uh, even with the rebirth of Islam, and as people drew from religion to counteract what they thought were the sort of the vestiges of morally disintegrating society, Many people believe that not everyone was practicing the right Islam, right? Uh, And this was evident in state leaders' rhetoric, who valorized Muslimness on the one hand, but also suppressed some religious movements on the other. So, for example, Tablihi Jamaat as a movement uh, is banned um, in Kazakhstan. Uh, Various other Muslim movements uh, are banned in Kyrgyzstan as well. So local Muslims suspected, uh, also, right, that financiers and larger um, organizations like Islamic banks, they seem to be hijacking the sacred and the profane efforts of turning a quick effort uh, profit. Uh, Some fellow Muslims appear to be, also, you know, some of my respondents would say, oh, you know, look at these people sporting long beards, right, or these women uh choosing to veil themselves but actually they like iman right iman meaning faith so there was this again you know sort of paradoxic uh dynamic of on the one hand there was a resurgence of religion but on the other hand there 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 was this palpable sense of doubt and uncertainty right Um, even some of the zealous Muslim themselves, they would say, well, I don't necessarily trust everyone who is veiled or I don't necessarily trust everyone who claims to be a good Muslim, right? So there was this sort of paradoxical dynamic um, and I think it's really important to account and to take that into account um, in our effort to understand, um, right, religious practice in this particular context. So one of the uh, telling examples from my field fieldwork uh, is actually about Khmus, uh, right? So those of you who are from Kyrgyzstan or who have been uh, to, to Kyrgyzstan and to Central Asia in general uh, will know this very well. Kumis is uh, fermented uh, mayor's milk, right? It's traditional to the nomadic um, cultures of the Kyrgyz and Kazakh uh, ethnic groups and other nomadic uh, ethnic groups as well. So you know, this uh, example of Kumis is very interesting because it actually uh, sparked a huge debate uh, in Kyrgyzstan and in Central Asia. Uh, And and the debate was that, you know, religious authorities and lay people basically were trying to decide, okay, so is this product halal or is it haram, right? The religious uh, authorities in Kyrgyzstan, they have debated um, that, and and they argued that, well, it actually has minor alcoholic content, right? Uh, And because of that, it could be considered intoxicating. But after extensive debates, uh, you know, the Mufti a fatwa, as I mentioned, fatwa is a ruling right, that religious authorities can issue. They basically issued a fatwa saying that commerce was to be regarded halal, since its um, alleged health benefits outweigh its negligible alcoholic component. So commerce is seen uh, as an authentic piece of national heritage, right, uh, which couldn't be labeled haram, as this rhetoric would suggest that it was harmful and impure. So the justification, basically, that religious authorities um, gave as they issued this fatwa, saying you can drink kumis even if you are, right, uh, the most zealous uh, Muslim, uh, because it is halal. So the justification was that, um, you know, khmus, it's it's rooted uh, in the in the it's 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 a key part of our national heritage uh, and basically you know it it can be consumed for restorative uh, rather than recreational purposes right so that it can be uh, because it's restorative for our health it's okay right to be consuming this product um, and we will consider it uh, halal even though again it has this minor so it's a very interesting uh, case for me right i can talk more about it if there are questions later so Extending these uh, discussions, uh, Kyrgyzstani entrepreneurs in the halal sector often share their belief that haram food manifests itself in one's body, but also psyche, right, being consequential for people's mental and physical well-being in the long run. So one of my respondents, uh, an owner and manager of a private Muslim daycare center in Bishkek, uh, Aziza, Uh, She shared her experience of learning more about halal over time, right? So here I have a quote on the slide where she says, we always thought we were complying with all the rules, but it turns out we had been eating all kinds of things that include haram, prohibited ingredients, right? All those candies containing pork, gelatin, and now just imagine how many children we had given all the prohibited food, right? so she, she she was mentioning this as she discussed basically that she went through um, the certification process she went to this third-party halal certifying agency uh, that basically was uh, a week or two week long training where they basically you know explained right to these entrepreneurs how to detect Uh, if a certain product is halal right Um, and in this case she was discussing the case of candy right different kinds of uh, chocolate bars and so forth that they actually would have for uh, festivities and celebrations at the daycare and she was talking about how she had not realized that they contain uh, pork gelatin right and therefore they should be considered haram so, to illustrate the consequences then of consuming Haram goods, uh, Aziza talked about procedures of slaughtering slaughtering cattle, right? So, here uh, again, you know, it's a quote, right? So, quote, you know that there is a certain order and rules of slaughtering cattle. For one thing, a slaughterer is not supposed to sharpen a knife in front of the animal because that will cause the animal um, were those candies deceptively labeled uh, as ha- halal? I think that was Sarah's that That's a very good question. Actually, it wasn't, uh, no, nobody was trying to deceive anyone, right? It's just that, uh, you know, this particular case, again, shows, you know, weren't necessarily aware, right? Or weren't necessarily paying attention to such things before. And even as they, so Aziza, for example, was one of those Muslims who, you know, she started veiling in early 2000s and started this business, right, this Muslim daycare where she, aside from the regular curriculum, wanted to teach children, you know, how to read Quran. She wanted to also have Arabic in her curriculum and so forth. And only then, right, she started paying attention to these things like, well, how do I if I want to make sure that everything is halal, uh, right, in my daycare, how do I how do I do that, right? And, and one of the things that she did was she went to this uh, agency that provided the training. Uh, and that's when she basically started paying attention to the ingredients and various other procedures. And here, the quote that I just started reading to you, she is talking about how in, when it comes to slaughtering, right, it's it's important uh, that an animal is slaughtered in a certain way. Otherwise, there will be, you know, if the animal is afraid uh, before being slaughtered, right? And the 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 animal is 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 going to have. And she says again, quote: all of that adrenaline will then stay in the meat that we will consume if it's not drained, if the blood is not drained. So no wonder why so much aggression comes out of people, unquote, right? So for Aziza, making sure the children at her private uh, Muslim daycare center, you know, that they were fed halal food and given a well-rounded education was important because, you know, it was a way for her to enforce Uh, to ensure the physical and spiritual well-being of future generations, right? And in her interpretation, and in the interpretation of many other Muslims, uh, which is again interesting, right? it shows this contextual uh, way in which Muslims in Central Asia are understanding halal, right? There's this, again, sense that there's so much disorder in the society, there's so much aggression, right? People would cite, for example, drivers, right, being very aggressive, and they would say, "Well, see, you know, they're so aggressive. Uh, there's so much aggression in in the public space, right? Uh, people can be very rude with each other, and they would say, Well, it's it's a it's it's a reflection uh, of the fact that people are not really following, right? Are not consuming halal food, for, or it's a reflection that people are choosing to live." or to lead a halal uh, sort of lifestyle, right? So I can talk more about this as we move along. I wanted to give you another quote here. Uh, from, yeah, so this is a quote from uh, another entrepreneur. He has a, uh, he, he was an entrepreneur from Osh uh, City in Kyrgyzstan, and he had a gem producing company. So here uh, he is talking about Again, how he understands right the consequence of uh, not, you know, of of not consuming uh, halal food, right? So he says, these days there are all kinds of chemically laden products, and you can really see the effect on people. We all witness on a regular basis how drivers get into fights over minor road accidents. I think it's because they don't eat halal food. If they would eat halal and did halal kind of work, it would all be ibadat, right? Take the example of Malaysia, a Muslim country where they have gone ahead over uh, of other Muslim countries. Um, I have heard that people are very polite there, and they apologize even if they accidentally bump into each other on the streets. in uh, our streets is the opposite, and so on and so forth. Right. So in this in this particular passage, he's talking about again how he understands right. What are the implications of consuming haram uh, sort of products? Right. So these two examples are very interesting for me, right, uh, because they point to this recurrent discourse that halal food is seen uh, by locals, right, as intrinsically good because it reduces supposedly, right, uh, uh, or eliminates aggression. And that this aggression is actually excessive and is a kind of a problematic um uh, thing right in our society. So these examples, uh, what they also do is they illustrate how halal food is imagined, right, to have impacts on society, um, since because you know, be- because of the intrinsic quality of the substances ingested, but also on the individual, right, on the kinds of health and, as I mentioned, the the mental and physical uh, well-being of people. So. Japar, you know the, the the entrepreneur that I just uh, quoted, he emphasized that his company only uses natural ingredients in the production. Uh, so here I'm bringing uh, up a quote again: "Quote, in making our jam, we have always we use berries, water, and sugar, and we don't use preservatives. Even if our jam may end up being more expensive, it will be adal, right? Adal in Kyrgyz means halal." Uh, unquote. So other respondents, uh, they similarly equated halal to also organic, but also natural food. Uh, Aynur, a manager of a halal eatery uh, in Bishkek that specialized in plof, uh she echoed Japar's sentiments, right, and shared that they only use natural ingredients in their food, uh, including their, for example, house-made compote, uh, right, made only with cherry, black currants, lemon, distilled water, and sugar. Um, so natural ingredients, according to her, ing- uh, spoiled the you know much faster., uh, but she was still eager to serve only the best to the clients, right? So again, it's interesting that sugar, for example, uh, is considered natural, right and not harmful. Uh, it was also interesting that very few of my respondents actually cited uh, kindness to animals as a primary reason for butchery uh, procedures. Aside from the chemical effect on humans, right? So again, these examples are very suggestive and revealing for the ways that they highlight practices such as slaughter, for example, right? Become these objects of concern uh, for particular kinds of reason. Uh, so for example, effects on the society or on the individual, right? Demonstrating the social and cultural embeddedness of the halal economy in this particular uh, context, right? Okay, so now we need to move on to our next set of slides. Yep, thank you, Um, Sarah. So haram or halal, right, clean or dirty. Um, Another thing that I would like to bring up here is that um, although most of the respondents, uh, right, most of the entrepreneurs that I interviewed They were either certified by a third party halal agency or claimed to have, um, you know, to be compliant with all the government uh, standards and government requirements. Uh, I also interviewed officers from the government side, right? So the officers of the sanitary uh, epidemiological station in Kyrgyzstan, they're the ones who basically oversee how businesses, especially cafes and restaurants um, and, you know, food producers, how they comply, right, to certain requirements when it comes to sanitary conditions, uh, when it comes to, you know, immunization, when it comes to various other, right, safety procedures. Um, So they they were pretty skeptical, actually, right, and they have voiced frustration with halal producers in particular, uh, because they basically would say, well, yes, they may have their halal certification, but they don't necessarily meet uh government standards right government requirements uh according to the representatives of this government agency such businesses have a tendency to evade government requirements on sanitation food storage and particularly immunization of workers So this debate around sanitary and hygiene conditions of halal businesses also demonstrate the politically charged nature of the sector of the economy, right? A few of my respondents actually confirmed that they are against immunizations, um, you know, thereby giving ground for speculation that some entrepreneurs in the halal sector may not be in compliance with some codes related to immunization uh, hygiene. Uh, and perhaps even sanitation, right, enforced by the government. Uh, it should, however, be noted that the prejudice sort of accepting, of right, the words of the sanitary epidemiology station, um, you know, in, instead of sort of just blindly believing what they say, right, what we need to be aware that is that you um, uh, you know, these prejudices against uh, pious Muslim entrepreneurs, they're also tainted by the Soviet uh, secularist legacies, right? In my interviews, some of the mid-bank government officials did not shy away from calling zealous Muslim communities lunatics, extremists, um, uh, and, you know, they have shared their disdain of the local young men um, who chose to sport long beards, for example, right? Uh, seeing them as overly pious some government officials and the broader secularist public in kyrgyzstan they continue the same rhetoric of the soviet state that viewed islam as a relic of backwardness right and aimed to uh rid central asians from the weight of their past so to say right by bringing modernity to them so these contentious um contentions among some government agencies and entrepreneurs in the halal sector, they also account, right, for this historic pathways uh, and dynamics between state and Besides uh, food, again, and as as you see on the title of the slide, you know it's not just about food, right? Entrepreneurs actually sh- have shared many of my interpre- uh, of my respondents shared that um, they have extended their understanding of what halal actually means to a wide array of business practices, right, and activities that went beyond their efforts to secure and use proper food ingredients, right, in their production and sales. Uh, many halal business uh, owners and managers in my field work, they shared that they, for example, have banned sales and consumption of alcohol and tobacco on the premises of their companies. Um, this way, they contended they earned their image as a clean place, right, uh, through actions rather than marketing and advertising. Uh, while less contentious, even uh, this principle of halal cafes and restaurants has led to some confrontation. So one of the anecdotal uh, and interesting, again, examples that I think really perfectly, you know, grasps, right, the dynamic uh, of, you know, pious versus secular is uh, Aynur. again, the manager of a halal restaurant in Bishkekshi. You know shared this example of how they banned alcohol consumption but some people would still bring their own bottle of vodka right and pour it into a teapot and you know would basically be sort of trying to to drink vodka while concealing it right uh, by pouring it into a teapot and then to um, into PLA right to t- teacups uh and and again she was sharing these examples sort of laughing right and saying well yeah this is this is how restaurant in Bishkek Um, but again you know for me it's just sort of a a very telling example uh, of what it means uh, you know what does it mean when you're running this sort of business right how do you try to carve out a space of sort of morality as you see it right and what sort of confrontations do you actually uh, get from consumers but also the government and various other um, actors involved in this market Um, I'm not sure if I'm running out of my time, Sarah, would you please let me know? I do have a few more slides Absolutely. to share. You're doing just fine. Yeah. Do, do I have five more minutes? Ten?
1: You have five more minutes, uh, but it's okay, OK if we go a little bit over. Yeah.
0: OK. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, so let me try to sort of run through the rest of my slides here. Um, So here again, I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing a quote from her interview where she says she basically interviewed what you know, what, what she is sharing here is that uh, some of the co-owners in her business, they wanted to switch back to the regular mode, so to say. Right. Uh, they just want to, to be not so profitable because. Um, you know the co-investors basically said well alcohol and tobacco used to bring 30 percent of our profit and we have lost that right since we moved to uh, switch to halal and they were basically convincing her to go back to go back right to the regular mode and i know she actually you know although she wasn't a very pious muslim herself she actually shared that she enjoyed uh, managing this cafe in the halal mode and she interviewed her uh, employees and said basically 80% of the workers wanted to the cafe to stay halal, right, the restaurant to stay halal. And she says, they say, the workers, right, they say that it's harder to deal with drunken clients. It's more stressful, even though they may leave more tips. And of course, not all people who drink cause trouble, but our employees are already used to leaving work on time and not having to stay over time because of clients. Can get carried away as they start drinking, right? So again, as, as she's showing here, you know, the the running uh, a business that's you know claimed to be halal, it's not you know a clear cut sort of uh, thing, right? It, it's not a, a, a cut and dry kind of uh, either follow or not follow. It's 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 a very interesting sort of right it, the 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 kind of dynamic that the, the and pull right is very interesting to actually uh, analyze Um, so what I also wanted to quickly share here is how some of the entrepreneurs were rethinking right uh, their work as they switched to sort of this halal mode Uh, a lot of them talked about how they wanted to earn their income, right, through adal ish, right. In Kyrgyz, adal ish basically means, literally it means halal work, but in Kyrgyz, it generally means work based on good intentions, right. Uh, and they also talked about axos, right, axos meaning uh, literally white words, but it also connotes words of wisdom and uh, propriety, right. So they talked about how, As they switch to this halal mode, they actually spent more time reflecting on, okay, so what how can I make sure that my income is actually earned through Adal-ish, right? Through um, the kind of work where you intentionally try to be better, right? Uh, Better to your customers, but also better to your uh, employees. Another thing, again, as I mentioned, uh, is you know they there, there was a lot of discussion about how they were trying to change the kind of script, right? The the typical script uh, of you know that that entrepreneurs usually follow when it comes to uh, dealing with the state. So typically, again, business owners in Kyrgyzstan and the broader uh, former Soviet space, uh, they are accustomed to solving you know, any sort of disputes, right, Uh, with street-level bureaucrats through bribes uh, or krisha, right? Krisha, again, in Russian literally means roof, but uh, it also connotes the kind of protection, right, Uh, that some entrepreneurs uh, basically gain by having connections to certain politicians, let's say, right? Um, So although admitting that they still do give bribes when demanded, (laughs) many of my respondents in this category, they shared that... uh, you know they are changing attitudes towards uh, engaging in corrupt practices, uh, as was showing in the opening vignette. Uh, entrepreneurs in the halal economy they admitted that the, that the you know they they have to sometimes again give bribes to street level bureaucrats, but uh, they try actually to sort of you know. To the letter of the law, right? And again, you know, this these kinds of discussions and reflections on what is halal, right, uh, when it comes to bribes, uh, or what is permissible, right, according to Islam, it, it just shows that you know when you enter this sort of space in the private business, right, it it, it has prompted uh, a lot of entrepreneurs to basically spend a lot of time, right, uh, thinking about this question. Uh, some of them have talked to the religious authorities, right? Uh, for example, heads of certain mosques, or maybe leaders, right? Religious leaders that they trust. Um, some of them here in the photograph, uh, we have, you know, Lake Chubakaji, for example, right? Some of the entrepreneurs uh, share that they have consulted with him uh, when it comes to giving or receiving bribes, right? Uh, They basically said, you know, we have been asking these questions, like what do we do when we face this particular type of scenario, right, in our business? Uh, What's the better way? Um, So you know, again, um, these narratives, let me jump to the last set of my uh, slides here. Oops. Yes, so these narratives uh, that I have just uh, presented here, they show the dubious nature, right, of the gray zones and the halal economy. I call them gray zones because, because again, you know, it's not a clear-cut guideline, right? This is halal, this is haram. Rather, there are a lot of these gray zones where, you know, it's not a linear sort of, uh, you know, being pious, right, or leading a halal business is not a linear sort of... uh, process right entrepreneurs actually voice their sense of ambiguity as I shared right when it comes to interpreting halal Uh, on the one hand there are many areas that are unclear to interpret and practice Uh, on the other hand however this ambiguity also has left the space right and granted agency to entrepreneurs to reflect rethink and flexibly adopt changes in their business practices so the views and practices of pious entrepreneurs uh, in Bishkek and Osh cities and discussed here, um, you know, very briefly, obviously, uh, they show that halal businesses are not simply responding to the growing demand outside of the markets, right? They are constructing uh, and reproducing religious practices through markets as well, right? In other words, um, you know, entrepreneurs who switch to this halal mode, right, they're not just doing it. Because they think, oh, you know, there is this growing demand, let's just, you know, turn our business into halal and we'll be making more money. No, actually, as I showed in the case of Ainur, uh, they're losing profit, right? And then the question becomes, well, do I continue, right, running my business in this way or do I go back? Uh, And if I do that, you know, Am I going to lose credibility in the eyes of my customers, but also the kind of community that I am uh, part of, right? So initially, uh, in the first decade of independence, um, consumer capitalism was seen by locals in Kyrgyzstan and the broader Soviet space as the force that sort of ushered, right, bardak or disorder. Uh, With consumer goods that flooded markets, however, people also gained access, right, to more ideas about Islam and Muslimness. So entrepreneurs in the halal sector of the economy, they have been trying to enact Islam, right, in the market by seeking ways of producing and offering truly, right, halal goods and services, however they understand that, and alter their managerial and business practices in light of their economy the should therefore be understood not only as the space where abstract forces of demand and supply meet right at the proverbial equilibrium point but also as a space where private business owners and managers seek to affirm their personal piety and contribute to constructing pious individuals and communities as they try to make their living so aspiring to improve the religious knowledge and practice but at the same time voicing their doubts and uncertainties as I mentioned right entrepreneurs and other actors within the halal economy they conceive of their work as a continuous uh, work in progress right Uh, they would say well which means in Kyrgyz I'm I'm trying to uh, improve my faith right or the way that I practice my faith And their efforts, therefore, should be understood both in light of the global, but also local dynamics. Uh, Increasingly, global value chains have made it easier for entrepreneurs to source ingredients. But at the same time, uh, they have posed difficulties, right, in terms of discerning who is complying with halal standards. So entrepreneurs that they were inspired to explore their own muslimness because of their uh, local but also transnational experiences, right, of traveling and studying abroad, and they employ these experiences to deliberate on the meanings of halal proper muslim behavior. Uh, besides their concerns over ingredients uh, and their compliance with halal standards, however, entrepreneurs extend their conceptions of uh, halal to the realms of broader morality, right, what is moral, what is immoral, what is worthy, what is unworthy. Uh, they also ex- extend these conversations and deliberations to uh, the ways in which they want to change, right, the, the, the usual script of how they relate to the state. Um, but also, you know, it, they extend this to the ways in which they imagine, right, what better uh, future for their society actually looks like. So I will end here and I'm happy to take questions, but I'm hoping that you know this was interesting and um, obviously this was very surface level, right? Um, I tried to include many examples. So I'm sure there are plenty of questions to go through. So I'll end here.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. That was such an interesting presentation.